Hello and welcome. I'm your host, Adam Hawkins. This episode is a small batch of software delivery education. If you enjoy this episode, then share it with your friends and colleagues. Hello again, Adam here for the next bonus episode. This week, I have another interview I did on the Rails with Jason podcast. This was a follow-up interview to the first one where we talked about pre-flight checks and smoke tests, which kind of got into uh, DevOps and continuous delivery and why those things are important. So he invited me back on to do an introductory episode on DevOps. So in this interview, we discussed the three ways of DevOps, flow, feedback, and learning, and the four uh, metrics for software delivery. That's lead time, deployment frequency, MTTR, and the change failure rate. We talk about the background for these ideas, how they, how they relate, the concept of reinforcing feedback loops, the importance of automated testing as sort of a P0 for any of this work, and also why friends don't let friends use Elastic Beanstalk. So without further ado, I give you my appearance on Rails with Jason. Hey, today my guest is Adam Hawkins, again for a second time. Uh, Adam Hawkins teaches developers how to ship faster and increase reliability. Adam, welcome to the show. Hi, Jason. Happy to be back. Yeah, it's, uh, it, it feels like it's been seven days since I talked to you last. It actually has been exactly seven days. We had such a good conversation last time, and uh, we talked about so many different things. It's a good opportunity to come back and expand upon our first conversation. Yeah, when I talked with you last, I'm like, this could make like 10 podcasts easily, so let's at least do another one. So first of all, do you want to, I know you gave a little intro of yourself last time, but for anybody who didn't catch the last episode, do you want to give a little intro of yourself? My name is Adam Hawkins. I'm a site reliability engineer at the moment where I am in charge of continuous delivery at Skillshare. And I am also the host of the Small Batches podcast where I do short episodes on different topics of software engineering. Today, we're going to talk about DevOps. And basically, the idea is we're going to talk about DevOps kind of for people who aren't very familiar with DevOps. So if you've heard DevOps buzzwords, but you're not really sure what it's all about, then this episode is for you. Before we get into all that stuff, I want to ask you a little bit about your job. What do you do? Like, what does that mean to like be in charge of the continuous delivery or whatever? Okay, so good question. I think in a nutshell, what I do is I create the infrastructure integrations required to achieve continuous delivery at Skillshare. So in practice, what this means is making sure that continuous, continuous integration is in practice or like is set up and following some kind of best practices. And then we have a deploy pipeline such that like when, when commits are green, that we can deploy them all the way through to production using kind of using some of the best practices we talked about last episode with like smoke tests and pre-flight checks and that we have the appropriate monitoring in place and telemetry to say that once something is actually running in production, is it you know working as expected? Is it not causing any kind of performance issues or changing any of our SLIs? That's service level indicators. And then fostering the idea of like ownership 
in a team that uh, developers generally should feel empowered that they have some code, they can run it through the whole process to go from development to production, and then also understand what being in production means and what responsibilities it puts on developers. And then like supporting that whole, that whole thing is pretty, pretty broad uh, umbrella. Yeah. Yeah. And I have a whole bunch of questions about that stuff, but out of discipline, I will save my questions for maybe a little bit from now. And I'm sure there are some terms that you use that not every single listener is familiar with, but hopefully we can get into that stuff. I, I want to unpack that stuff, but it would probably be cart before horse if we dove straight into that. Exactly. I think so too. Yeah. So before that, let's just talk about DevOps in general. DevOps is like a notoriously hard concept to to capture in like a one sentence definition. But mm-hmm. if somebody were to ask you, hey, Adam, what is DevOps? What would you say to that? Well, my answer, I have actually written about this a lot. So what I say is DevOps is a philosophy for relating software development and business. So okay. the point about DevOps is it's really a philosophy for understanding the relationship between software development and business. I mean, DevOps really is about connecting business outcomes and business value delivered to the customer as seen through the work we do as software engineers. So for me, I haven't really seen anything that puts the kind of customer focus into the work that we do as software engineers. And the kind of overarching framework of framework of DevOps provides a clear, a clear way to relate all the different practices we have to achieve the goals of ultimately building successful businesses and delivering value to the customers. And there's nothing in there about that as technical. That's kind of the other thing, right? It's really just a, you know, starting at kind of a first principles approach of we know what is important, but nothing yeah. still has been like said then. But that comes back to your point that it's kind of hard to exactly put your finger on what DevOps is because it is an abstract idea. But luckily, over the past probably. 10 years or so, I think the definition of DevOps has has really been clarified. Mm-hmm. Okay. I'm trying to get at like, how is DevOps useful? Why do we even have DevOps? Um, mm-hmm. What it, and, and maybe a good way to get at that would be like, what are the pains an organization might feel if they're not taking advantage of DevOps principles? Um, and yeah, maybe let's start there. Yeah. So that's a good, uh, a good segue into, into this whole topic. So you know, the question is why, right? Why do we care about this? And the answer is that, especially for software companies, that a software company's ability to deliver business value to the customer in production. So by business value, I mean things like the customer, why the customer pays you, right? So that might be features or bug fixes, you know, availability. Why do people use Netflix? Why do people pay for any software? As a software organization, our ability to deliver this business value to the customer as quickly as possible is paramount to our success. And the reason I say that is because imagine, let's say you're in company A and you're competing with company B. If company B is able to build their product faster than you, get it to market faster, deliver a more reliable product and deliver like say features faster and bug fixes faster, it's going to be much harder for you to compete with them. So in order for you to achieve these outcomes of you know fast delivery, high availability, there's a certain approach you have to take, and this kind of fits under the umbrella of what is DevOps. Does that okay. uh, connect these things? Yeah, that helps. 
and I might add some of my own stuff because just just for the listener, for some background on my level of familiarity with DevOps, I have read a couple DevOps books. I've done what you might consider some DevOps work, but I'm not some kind of DevOps. I'm I'm not like somebody who is hired with a DevOps title or or anything like that. Um, no. So limited level of familiarity. Some experiences I've had in the past are like I've worked at places that will only do a deployment like once every six weeks right. or they'll attempt to do a deployment once every six weeks. And in reality, right. they do a deployment once every two months, which ironically, they could probably deploy every day if they try to deploy every day. But since they try to deploy every six weeks, they can't do that because right. there's so much stuff to deploy each time. Mm-hmm. So that's an example. I've worked at places that, and this is maybe more tangential, but like I've worked at places that don't do automated testing, as you and I mm-hmm. discussed on our last episode. Right. That makes it really difficult because when you add any, when you make any change, how do you know that you haven't introduced a regression as part yeah. of that change? So there's a lot of a lot of pains involved, and I I am curious to get your take on this, Adam. It mm-hmm. seems like it seems like over the last ten years or whatever. DevOps principles have really like have really become clear and they've become very available in the sense that like you can go buy a DevOps book and learn what it's all about. Right. You can mm-hmm. find a bunch of blog posts and stuff like that as opposed to like when I started when I started coding in, in <laughs> right. the 90s. Back in the, the day, right? Yeah. There was no concept of this stuff. There was no DevOps. So the the principles have moved at a certain pace, but the adoption of course has lagged be- behind just the adoption of anything lags behind. And it's kind of like surprisingly not, you know, there's that saying the future is here. It's just not evenly mm-hmm. distributed. My perception is like most companies are probably not all that much DevOps stuff and they're suffering from these pains. What's your take on that? I think that's true. And uh, if you, one other book that discusses this topic is uh, Project to Product, which is a really good book. And um, there's a, don't quote me on this, but he kind of does the analysis of say how many, what percentage of companies are actually applying these principles and relates it to market cap. And it is like under like 5%. So like there's a huge, you know, gap between organizations that see the value in these, in like this way of working and do it compared to all those that aren't, right? And, yeah, you know, it also like connects back to what you mentioned, and then we'll probably get into this more later in the interview, but the, you mentioned like deploying every six weeks or like doing automated testing. All of these practices connect to the team's ability to iterate and develop their product quickly and correctly. And to kind of the way that I've described or like kind of did a taste test for this is which one of those organizations do you want to work in? Is it the one that deploys every two months or the one that deploys every day? Is it the one that has automated testing or the one that doesn't? And to me, the answer is clear. Like if you deploy two, every two months, I don't want to work there. If you deploy every day, then that's a really good indicator of where you are like technically and organizationally in terms of what you think is important. Because especially if you're doing web services, if you are specifically choosing that sort of release cadence, question is why, right? And likely your competitors and other people are not moving at that. So why hamstring yourself by thinking that you have to work like that? But that also comes back to the point you made about like the industry is relatively when I say industry, I mean like software engineering is relatively young comparatively to other ones. But if we look at maybe the past 15 years of software development, you know, we had web 1.0, 2.0, 3.0, 4.0, 5.0, 6.0, 7.0, 8.0, 9.0, 10.0, 11.0, 12.0, 13.0, 14.0, 15.0, 16.0, 
we had web 2.0 which like web 2.0 with like initial google and google uh, maps and all this stuff and then it wasn't even until 2008 that amazon ec2 like amazon aws just came out and then cloud came out and then we started to have tools that allowed us to work out of and just an entirely different way. And once what's kind of changed, I think, in the past five to 10 years is really our, as an industry, understanding of how to leverage tools like cloud infrastructure automation and these, you know, other software as a service, like other software as a service stuff to just work in an entirely different way. I can't even remember the last time that I had to, say, provision a VPS SSH in and install some packages. To me, that's and like an ancient way of workings. The stuff I do now is all containerized. It's all Kubernetes. It's all cloud. Like I can't even imagine using something other than say AWS or GCP. This is the kind of the modern way of working. Yeah. Yeah. Once you start using infrastructure as code, it seems crazy to go back to not doing that. It seems almost as crazy as like giving up version control or something like that. Exactly. Right. And as different engineers experience these kind of higher levels of software development enlightenment, you don't ever want to go back because you see how just better it is. Like you are more confident. You're actually happier in your work also, which is a big thing that we don't really talk about in engineering. Yeah. Because it, I mean, that reduces burnout. And I don't know about you, but if you're burnt out, man, that is a, it's a hard thing to come back from. Like, and if you are in a job and the work you do is just adding like friction and toil to your life, you don't want to do it. Yeah, that's that's definitely true. And I've said for a long time that like these job ads that advertise things like ping pong tables and keg graders are totally advertising the wrong benefit. I, I would much rather see a benefit listed of we give you permission to do your job right. You can work with smart people who are doing things. I don't want to say the right way, but they're doing things in a smart way. To me, that's so right. much more appealing than any of these like peripheral perks. Exactly. Like, I don't care if you give me a ping pong table, if all the code you give me has no tests, that means nothing to me. Exactly. It's far better that you have kind of achieved some level in this kind of like capability model. Exactly. Okay. So now that we've teased the listener with this picture of the world that can be so great when you're doing all these smart things, let's right. get into the, the meat of like, what are some of these things? And maybe since I, I kind of dug into the continuous delivery thing a little bit at the top of the show, maybe we uh -huh. could dig into that a little bit. How does that sound? Yeah, sounds good. So, okay, let's like just step back a little bit and sort of give the introductory overview to the idea of DevOps and this sort of stuff. And we can get to the technical practices later. So coming back to what I said earlier, the way to think about DevOps is really a philosophy about software development business. I think this is best defined in the book, The DevOps Handbook, and then quantified in the book, Accelerate. The things I'm going to talk about in this podcast, these are not my ideas. These are just like what I have discerned from reading these books, writing a lot about DevOps and helping and teaching other engineers to implement these things. Coming back to what is DevOps, the DevOps Handbook introduces, quote, the three ways of DevOps. So the first way is flow. The second way is feedback, and the third way is learning. So the way to think about DevOps, it's a set of reinforcing feedback. The first way is all about achieving fast flow from development to production. This speaks to my example about being in a you know, company that's maybe deploying once every two months compared to a company that's deploying every day, right? If you are shipping code faster, you're just 
moving at a much higher velocity. First way flow kind of relates to velocity. A lot of people in our industry, regardless if they've been exposed to DevOps, are kind of familiar with the term of software development philosophy. That's the first way. All right. So the second way, feedback is all about right to left. So the first way, if you imagine like a Kanban board, you move cards from the left where they go in development to the right in production. But as we know, code doesn't die when it's in production. In fact, that's where code actually lives. It's the only place that it matters where it is. What we need in production is different kinds of telemetry to verify that the production environment is uh, operating correctly. So for example, if you have achieved fast flow from development to production, then once stuff gets into production, you need to verify it as quickly as possible using you know, metrics on things like your SLOs, something like you need to have all your responses under 500 MS. You need to monitor that. And if you deploy a change that, doesn't, that breaks that agreement or breaks that metric, then you need to be able to undo it. The idea here is why I say that they're reinforcing feedback loops is the faster you can get your code into production, that's the faster you can learn about how it works or if it doesn't work. Because you've probably been in a situation where you write something, you know, you develop it, you put it through the test, you deploy it to production, and then there's some wildly different behavior. The faster you can get to production and learn about it, aka collecting that feedback, the faster that you can adjust to it. That's part of it. The other part of it is using sort of their production operational state as a way to influence subsequent work. So this is where the feedback loop comes in. So if you see that you've deployed something to production, you don't have telemetry, well, then you need to take on the development work to add that telemetry. Yeah. Right? So you, telemetry like, is... Okay, good, good question. So telemetry is any kind of data you can use to understand the current state of your system. Practically, this is stuff like logs, uh, metrics, events, these kind of things. Like if you have ever hooked up something to Datadog or Grafana, Prometheus, any other stuff that gives you the idea of what's actually happening in a particular environment. So those are those are the first two. Okay. Yeah. And just a couple comments on that. One of the benefits to me of deploying frequently is keeping parity between development and production. You mentioned the idea of deploying something and then experiencing different behavior in production than you have in development bigger your delta between production and development, the bigger the chance that something like that is going to happen. So if you keep your dev code and your production code really tight and they don't ever diverge that much from each other, there's mm-hmm. a much smaller chance that you're going to have those nasty problems. Although unfortunately, it's like a fact of life that you're always going to have that to some that's degree. Some degree, right? But that's where the feedback comes in. Like if you deploy something to production and then you find out that it's, say, broken or something's wrong, however you want to say it, and that's the feedback you need to do something, change your development process or like change the way that environment is configured or take something or you know take some actions to actually mitigate that failure from happening and that's where that feedback comes in right yeah and it's also true that there's oftentimes let's say you're working on a feature that's not really just like a feature but it's a whole area of the application it's a project within the application mm-hmm. it's often impossible no matter how smart you are to envision the fully formed version of that project in a way that is going to ultimately work out. What is often necessary is that you deploy something and then you, like you say, you, you deploy something, you get feedback, you react to it, you build the next stage of that project. Let's say you do that for three months. The thing you end up with at the end of the three months is usually so different 
from what you had imagined in the beginning, or maybe even couldn't imagine anything in the beginning. And it's just an absolute necessity to get that stuff out there. Places that try to do these big bang releases and, and do three months worth of work and then release this huge thing that typically doesn't go great. Right. And we can get into this later, but that's actually diametrically opposed to the first way of DevOps, which is about fast. If you're working in such a way that requires you to have these really long times between when you start working to production, then all you've done is just extend out this whole process. Mm, yeah. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. Okay. So those are the first two ways. So then the third way is continuous improvement. That's the way that I think about it. If you imagine the first way is a feed, is trying to achieve fast flow from development to production. That's like one way forward. And then feedback gives you the right to left and you start getting in this fast iterative loop where you're able to work quickly, deploy to production, verify, learn, and just continue this iterative approach, right? The third way is outside that where then you try to see what's going on in my process. How can I improve the process? Where are the bottlenecks in my process? What, how are regressions introduced to product? What kind of failure signals are there that I can use to identify things? And as you think of it, let's say, imagine the ideal scenario where you never introduce new regressions to production. Something happens, you're able to add it, add, you know, cover it with a regression tag. So then if you imagine like a graph of time on the x-axis and bugs on the y-axis, hopefully over a long enough timeline, the bugs goes to zero. But in order to do that, you have to continually look at why these things happen and then take steps to continually improve your process so that they don't continue to happen. So that's about the third way, which is this outer feedback loop about continuously improving all the things that happen inside the whole process. Like, you know, you, the listeners, you can't see I'm making two feedback <laughs> loops with, with, my, with my hands, right? Does okay. that make sense? I think so. So continuous improvement is the third way. Okay, now that we've outlined those three ways, any any thoughts on where should we go? Should we dive into the, the continuous delivery thing from before? Perhaps, but at first I want to add one other thing, which is a way to actually quantify this, which is I think where the part of the confusion and vagueness comes in, like with the term DevOps, is that how do you answer the question of like, are we doing DevOps, yes or no? And how are we doing it? Like those two books I mentioned, the first one, the DevOps handbook that introduces the three ways, which is what I just described and kind of overall what's covered in each one of these uh, different ways. And then the second book, Accelerate, mentions four metrics, which all relate to one of these different three ways. So the first metric is lead time. It's basically how fast your engineering team can deliver a particular thing that they're supposed to do, like be it a bug fix, a new feature, anything like that. Again, speaks to the example of like deploying every day versus deploying, you know, three weeks or, you know, X number of months. So then the second metric is deployment frequency. That's actually how often this comes back again to your example of these big bang releases. If you've ever been in a big bang release that's been under work on, you know, underway for months or potentially even multiple years, like <sighs> Right. I know, like we sigh, but just still you can talk to people and they have been in projects that go on for years, right? So, exactly. So, <laughs> odds are if you are doing big bang releases, you're not deploying very often. But if you're deploying often, that means you're keeping you like the size of each change small. Therefore, it's easier to develop, test, and verify. So, that's deployment frequency. Those two metrics first are lead time and deployment frequency, kind of measures of velocity. The next one is MTTR. That's your mean time to resolve. So let's say that you have a, a system running in production 
and you have some kind of monitor that detects, oh, the site is down. How long does it take you to go from receiving that notification to then actually resolving the issue, right? So like kind of how quickly can you restore service? And then next, the next metric is your change failure rate. This kind of speaks to that asymptote I mentioned earlier about over a long enough time horizon, hopefully that bug's going down to zero. So your change failure rate is kind of defined as the percentage of deploys that result in errors. And you can imagine, like say, in the beginning of an organization's lifetime, maybe their the whole deploy process of their software is not as reliable because they're just learning or you know whatever. But over time, if they apply third way of continuous improvement, they will learn what's going wrong and continually strive to bring down the change failure rate through whatever kind of technical changes need to happen. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I think from those three ways and those four metrics, you can then figure out how do I need to work to move those metrics in the right direction? The first two metrics, lead time. So like how fast does it take the engineering organization to just like build and ship something to production? And then the second uh, metric, deployment frequency, how often deploys happen. These speak to the first way, the first way of flow. So in practice, this means continuous delivery. And this is where I have to make a very important point when it comes to understanding like what DevOps is, is again, it's a philosophy for thinking about software development and business that kind of gives you the first principles of thinking about things. So then you can take these first principles and then figure out which way of working is most aligned with these principles. So for the first way, that's continuous delivery. And that's a whole big topic. Like if you yeah, want, have we can like talk a, about continuous delivery generally or you know, whatever. I have like a two-inch thick delivery, continuous delivery book on my bookshelf, which I have not read because I don't want to read an 800-page book on continuous delivery. That's crazy. <laughs> That's um, a book by Jez Humble and what's his name? Dave, Dave Farley or Fairley, I think. Yeah. Those guys in their books, they've written so many books. How do, they, how do they write all these books? It's crazy. They have all kinds of time or they get paid to write the books. Who knows? <laughs> yeah. And some, yeah, I don't know. Anyway, continuous delivery, yes, it is a huge topic. Maybe we can start by with some kind of definitions because a lot of people have heard the terms continuous delivery and continuous integration, and maybe they're not sure exactly what the difference is between the two. Uh, yes, this is another like constant point of confusion is that um, the terms are thrown around somewhat, uh, I don't know, they're just not used correctly all the time. And then they become misconstrued in different contexts. So continuous delivery is boils down to making sure that every commit you have can be tested such that you have the confidence that it can be deployed to production. If you think about it, this means like if I make a change, I need to have some automated way that gives me a pass fail that if it passes, I should be able to deploy this to production. If not, I know that's something wrong. So the way mm. that you the way that you achieve the pass fail is through continuous integration, which basically boils down to automated tech. Interesting. That's like different than how I would have expressed my understanding of continuous integration, continuous delivery. It's not at all at odds with the way that I would say it. It's, it's just different. So I'll share the way that mm -hmm. I would put it. So continuous integration is like, well, integrating your work continuously. And I'll describe the opposite of that, which mm -hmm. I've, I've worked like this a lot, which is, let's say you have two developers. Each developer is working on a feature I spend two weeks working on feature A, the other developer spends two weeks working on feature B, 
At the end of the two weeks, we both try to merge our features into master and, and everything's all three of these things, the master branch, feature A and feature B, are right. all getting merged together. And big surprise, there's some merge conflicts. And maybe not even just merge cons- conflicts, but like conceptual conflicts, like we're working in the same area in a different way. And, and so that's, that's really tough. Quick mm-hmm. side note, I worked at this place in like 2008, which was generally a, a pretty good place, but we, in a lot of ways, didn't know what we were doing. We would have these periodic meetings, which uh-huh. were titled merge parties. Oh, and I thought, it, I thought it was so funny because it's, it's a merge party. It's supposed to be fun because it's a party, <laughs> but we would, what a merge party was, we, we would just all get in a conference room. There wasn't even any alcohol involved. Uh, or or snacks or anything that you would associate with the party. So we would get into a into a conference room. On the screen, we would put up some code. We would try to merge, and then we would look at the merge diff, and we'd be like, "Okay, John, was this you? Okay, uh, do you think it was the left side or the right side? Which one should we keep?" And we would just tediously go through all these merge conflicts for like such a long time. So those were merge parties. It was awful. Anyway, those are some of the symptoms of not doing continuous integration. If you are doing continuous integration, then like, well, an extreme example of that is instead of developers A and B working on their features in in separate branches for two weeks, Mm -hmm. one way you could do that is both developers could just commit straight to master and have everything together all the time. Exactly. Which actually, if you have developers who like can handle that, that's not a bad way to go. If you if you know how to make commits that are atomic, you know, if you feature yeah. flag stuff, that you can do that. Right. So that's how I might characterize continuous integration in a very like lengthy and maybe sloppy way. But continuous delivery, I would I would say that integration is one part, but just because you're continuously integrating doesn't necessarily mean you're continuously delivering. Mm-hmm. And so the continuous delivery is like putting the results of all that stuff into your users hands on a very regular basis so again that stuff like isn't at odds at all with what you said i don't think Mm -hmm. but maybe a little bit different parts of those first of all your example of working on like master versus working on feature branches is actually a a, probably a better integration or better definition continuous integration so if you take a step back from continuous integration like how it's talked about in the devops handbook and accelerate the idea here is they kind of just use a different term, but they use the term trunk-based development. So you can replace trunk with master. But the idea here is that you don't have long-running branches. You have, If you do, they're very short. Like they might only be intended for like code review or definitely under a day. But the idea is that everybody is working in really short cycles or all committing to the same, the same branch so that you're continuously integrating all the work that you are doing with all the work that's already been done, combining that with an automated test suite that you can use to verify that your work does not break anything and your work is functioning as expected. So that gives you this sort of pass-fail criteria of oh, is, is your code okay or not, right? Yeah, yeah, because a key part of the integration process is the verification after the integration is done. Exactly. So without the automated test, and this comes back to like the conversation we had in the last episode, which is from... T0, you need automated tests. Like you can't have any of these next level order, next level performance things without having automated tests. If you're a listener and you are working in a place that does not have automated tests, then figure out some way to get automated tests. That's the first and most important thing you can do to move the needle on 
any of this stuff. Very true. And if you want to learn testing, go to codewithjason.com. Yes, I actually have taken your course. It's really good introductory stuff. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah. thanks. I actually have been meaning to update that Ruby testing micro course forever because I've learned a lot since then and I'm working on a, a better one. But anyway, uh-huh. uh, there's still a whole bunch of automated testing stuff at, at codewithjason.com just to pitch my own stuff a little bit. Okay, so yeah, automated tests are like foundational to all this stuff. You you can't do all the other stuff without it because automated tests enable those things. Right. So then your point about like putting it in the customer's hand is more about continuous deployment, right? So the idea of continuous delivery is that you're continuously delivering something that can be deployed to production. Now, if you are confident enough in your whole setup that you can, say, automatically deploy every commit to production, then you're doing continuous deployment. So at the end of continuous delivery, you have something that has been built, tested, and verified such that it can be, not necessarily that it is, but that it can be deployed. That's a great distinction. That matches what somebody, how somebody explained it to me a while ago. That was kind of fuzzy for me, which is why I kind of botched my my explanation. But yeah, you, the continuous delivery is having something always ready to go, always in a deployable state. Like you said, doesn't necessarily mean that you have deployed that particular. Right. So this is where the principle of flow interacts with the practices of continuous integration, trunk-based development, automated testing, and some kind of like testing kind of slash deployment pipeline where you know, it's not necessarily just enough to just run, say, a series of automated tests, but like, has it been through a deployment pipeline and been like successfully deployed to a staging environment? Like, do you know that it's able to progress farther through this whole process? So that's the principle of flow in a nutshell. So all of this stuff should be automated. You know, you need automated deployment pipelines. You need all of these things. And all this is irrespective and actually independent from whatever your underlying technology like you can do this with mainframes you can do this with physical hardware you can do it do this with cloud in the book devops handbook they talk about uh, hp who was kind of in the situation you mentioned earlier where you they had developers working on different feature branches and they had these bsdm merge parties where nobody liked it but they had to do it and you know (laughs) because that's the kind of party it is right everybody knows it's going to suck I, well, I think um, a BSDM party is more fun. Depends who's who's in it. But the point is, it's a pain party. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, oh, okay. I didn't even catch your... I got it. Okay. Right. Anyway, uh, <laughs> they had this issue where they were blocked, basically, by the way they were working. They didn't have any tests. And what they were able to do, which just blew my mind, I think it's so cool, that they adopted trunk-based development and they built a whole rack and virtual simulator for their printers so they could build printer firmware and test it out in a simulated environment as opposed to putting it actually on physical printers to verify every change and then eventually start rolling out these firmware changes. Really cool. If they can do it with physical hardware, you can certainly do it with software. Mm -hmm. So that's the principle of flow. Okay, great. And if you want to start moving in that direction, let's let's say I'm in a place and this is, there's so many cans of worms inside of this. Uh Uh-huh. Let's say I'm working somewhere where they do deployments every six weeks and it's a nightmare. There's like this big, arduous manual QA process before each deployment. Each Mm -hmm. deployment gets deferred like two or three times because you have to... You know what's funny? Side note. Yeah. You always see these waterfall timelines. The last week is testing. 
And it's like, right. oh yeah, your expectations, you're doing the testing, just making sure it works. And what, what happens if it doesn't work? You're not actually leaving Ex- any time to go back and fix stuff. Yeah, exactly. It's not testing, it's verification. Right. Uh, verifying the perfect work that we obviously did. Anyway, yeah. what can you do if you're, and obviously you could answer this very many ways. What could you do if you're working in a place like that and you want to get to a better way? Starting from first principles, this is what, why DevOps I think is so important because it, it provides the first principles to approach a problem and identify how to move forward in these situations. Coming back to the four metrics, there's lead time, deployment frequency. So usually these two are correlated. So an example of you just give the, they're taking so long between deployments and they have this whole process that's manual. And that's part of the reason why it takes so long. And because it also takes so long, the amount, the size of a deploy gets bigger because, you know, as you know, projects, as they go on for longer, they only get bigger. They never get smaller. Given that those two metrics, lead time and deployment frequency, the goal here is to decrease lead times, aka take a shorter time to, you know, build test and deploy something, and then deployment frequency, deploy more often. And this example you mentioned is what are the things that can be done to A, decrease the lead time, so move faster, and then B, increase the deployment frequency. So one thing that stood out to me, which is, quote, manual testing. If you have manual testing, question is, why are you not doing automated? Start there. And then the next thing is correlation between deployment frequency and batch size. So batch size, and this means sort of the size of the, right? So like the change set that you're evaluating, right? The kind of the delta between what is there and what's going to be there. So in order to deploy more frequently, you have to work in smaller batches. Also, that's the name of my podcast. Actually, how I came up with the name small batches is why the episodes are small is that if you can digest information that's, you know, in a smaller batch, like the episodes are only five minutes long on a topic, you can go through a lot of those faster. You could have information, I think more information at the end is if you had delayed it, trying to do like one hour every day or something. You can continually work on a small batch because you can iterate faster. Okay, got it. So figure out ways to reduce the size of the work you have in progress and then figure out ways to automate whatever manual stuff you have such that you can get to some sort of automated process, which then you can scale and then improve there. Got it. And obviously, there's like a fractal tree of of uh, subtopics inside of that. Like, if you oh, don't yeah. have if you don't have automated tests and you want to get automated tests, why don't you have automated tests? Is it because nobody on the team believes automated tests are a good idea? If that's mm-hmm. the case, that is going to be a tough road. Mm-hmm. And quite frankly, you're probably better off just leaving that place and I agree. A job somewhere else. Yes, if somebody who is like the the decision maker at your organization believes that if they won't be convinced, then you're better off just leaving. Yeah. But let's say it's it's a case where just the skills aren't present, then that's a mm-hmm. whole different story. And, and maybe that's not even like a, a productive topic to get into right now because that's just such a such a huge thing that involves it's technical, it's interpersonal, it involves all this this persuasion mm-hmm. and psychology stuff to get everybody uh, on the same page with all that stuff. But well, okay. That's true though. But a part of it also relates to that. Look, the fact of the matter is like, this is not easy. This is a hard thing to do for organizations of any skill level, training level and engineers of any skill level, because there's always going to be competing forces pushing at different areas of this whole thing. And that's why you need 
you know, senior engineers to teach junior engineers. You need, you know, mid-level engineers to look how to improve the different things that you do and help the, the junior or lower level engineers. If you have, like, if this is your first application you worked on, like your first job, right, it's going to be hard for you to, you know, achieve all this stuff just because you, it really does require a lot of, just a lot of knowledge of all these different areas. Yeah, it's crazy all the different things that you need to know in order to be an effective software developer these days. I hear a lot of people lament that fact, um, yeah. but I don't think it's actually something we should lament. I think it's actually, a, it's, it's not necessarily a bad thing because the, the reason for it is not because like we've added all this complexity for no reason. It's mm-hmm. just the, the expectations have changed and our capabilities have changed. In 1996, when I put my first website online, it wasn't possible for like one developer to build a sophisticated web application where you deploy several times a day. You know, you can do so much more stuff in 2020 than you could. Wow, that's like 24 years ago. Um, I know, long time. Yeah. Our capabilities are so much greater now. And also, again, the expectations are greater. Mm Mm-hmm. And those are the reasons. It's not just a bunch of complexity people added to like make right. their own job hard for no reason. Exactly. I've observed this in myself also as somebody who produces software, but also as all of us, we consume software. How many hours has all of us spent like watching YouTube or Netflix or Hulu? And how many of those hours has it worked flawlessly? We as users and paying customers for all these services, we expect them to work all of the time, regardless of whatever happens, right? Like if you hit play, on Netflix and it doesn't play, you are dissatisfied as a customer. And we have come to expect that software is like the lights. It's like the utilities, that it's always there, it's always on, and it's always working. That expectation has drastically changed in the past 24 years. And yeah. In order to actually meet this customer expectation, and again, this comes back to the relationship between software development and business, because it connects to what your customers expect is like what you're actually trying to build and deliver. Mm-hmm. That if you can't meet the customer expectation, then you're not going to build a successful business. Yeah. Yeah. And we've grown so much more dependent on software now, too. I'm just thinking about all the things that make this podcast recording and release possible. So we're using mm-hmm. Google Hangouts right now. Like if if Google Hangouts didn't work for us right now, I'd be pissed. And also, right. like it would be a genuine problem because like we'd have to re-record the episode and stuff. There's the calendar software. Like if that wasn't working right, like if I went to open the Google Hangout and I couldn't get to the calendar page, well, then like we can't do the episode. And mm-hmm. then after this, I need my podcast hosting software to be available or, you know, that's not quite so time sensitive because it's not like a synchronous thing. I can do that. Mm-hmm. If, if it's not working at a particular time, I can try again later and that's fine. It's no longer a thing as to, at the risk of stating the obvious, the internet used to be just this fun, weird thing. And right. now it's like a necessity that people City. depend on for like important real stuff. Exactly. And that's why our responsibilities as professional engineers, and I say professional because I do think there is a distinction between the stuff we do on the side or for fun, where we're not as rigorous, like we don't care, versus the things that we do for the customers we ultimately serve. And that's where we work as professionals. And that standard for being a professional engineer has gotten much, much higher in the past five. Yeah, to the point where, you know, it used to be that you could just be a developer and nobody, there was no front end, back end developer. There wasn't like, 
I'm a DevOps guy or whatever. Just programmers were programmers, but now there has to be this stratification because you can't you can't be competent in all the different areas, which again is is fine because it's uh the 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 needs have changed and that's why all the tooling and stuff has changed and i do mm-hmm. want to say that you can still do it the old way mm-hmm. if i wanted to ftp like 10 html files that were like copied and pasted from each other with just like a few words changed yeah. you can do that there's no re- there's yeah. nothing stopping you that website just kind of sucks I'd be more surprised if you could even find an FTP client. I don't even know what people use for that anymore. Yeah, I, I, I haven't used FTP in a long time. I used to work for this development agency that did all their deployments via FTP, and uh-huh. I left. And then I worked for them as recently as like 2011 or 2012, and they were still doing everything via FTP. Wow, crazy. They're probably still doing FTP. They're probably still doing FTP. If you're holding it for this long, you're going to pull that <laughs> FTP from their cold, dead hands because now it's just institutional. Yeah, a lot of people are probably still FTP in some stuff, <laughs> which is maybe fine for some things. Okay, we have probably limited time left in the episode. Where would be a good place to go for maybe the last five or 10 minutes or so? Well, I think maybe we can just talk a little bit about the principle of flow and the principle of continuous improvement. Like we talked about, like in practice, the principle of flow means continuous delivery, continuous integration, like automated deployment. So in the principle of feedback, the idea here is to create feedback or create like failure signals, different kind of telemetry signals that we can use to identify if things are passing or failing, just different checks and use that to inform if we should, you know, how we should work or what should be changed. So in practice, what this boils down to is having some kind of real-time telemetry for your system. If that's like HTTP services, that's like request counts, latencies, status code breakdowns, you know, things like this, things that you can use to quickly identify if your service is A, like even running, and then B, if it is running, is it meeting whatever the criteria, uh, like the operational criteria it needs to be, right? If that's like performance or availability. So, and then we have the third way is continuous improvement. And the idea here is kind of how I like to approach it is if we think of every change that we do as software engineers as kind of a hypothesis and that when we deploy to production, we can verify our test or hypothesis. So if we, as a product developer, if you're thinking that, okay, if I make feature X, it's going to like engage with some percentage of our user base or perhaps generate X amount of new revenue for us, that's a business hypothesis. If you write that code and deploy to production, that's an experiment. Is it does it work as expected? So then if the answer is yes, then cool, you know, you can continue doing that. But if the answer is no, then why not? You need the kind of model of approaching all the work you do scientifically as is this idea that we have valid, did it deliver the expected results? If so, good. If not, why? And then taking steps to change the way that you work such that you adopt that thinking. Does that make sense? I think so. So it kind of relates to like lean, lean development theory. But in the third way, this is basically doing things. One of the examples they give is blameless postmortems, right? So like, why did something happen in production? Why did it go wrong? What's the timeline? And what steps can we do as a team to prevent this regression from happening again? Like that's an act of continuous improvement, right? In learning and understanding like what, what went wrong. But then also continually striving to be better, right? This speaks to that asymptote, right? Because as you get better at what you do, 
the failures are going to become, they're going to become less frequent, hopefully, but they're going to become more complicated, right? And how different failure modes manifest themselves. This is where engineering practices like chaos engineering come in, like the idea of killing different parts of your production infrastructure to see how your system performs and making sure that you design your system like resilient enough to handle this. And the point is, like in this example, that to a certain point, you don't know what you don't know anymore. So you kind of have to introduce some randomness to see how things play out so you can learn from them and then change your system accordingly. Got it. Okay. That's a brief summary of those two ways, the other, the other two ways. Probably don't have time to talk about them much more in depth, but uh, yeah, reinforcing feedback. Yeah. Okay. This is something that I'm going to be more and more interested in over the next while the, without getting like too much into the details of it. The business that I work for is expanding a lot because mm -hmm. we've, well, the business is expanding and it hasn't exactly hit the IT system yet, but it's going to soon. Too. And so mm -hmm. I'm in a position where I need to like get things in order so that we don't have some disasters when that time comes. Nice. And yeah. The stuff that, that is probably like the top of my mind right now is like right now things are hosted on AWS. Mm -hmm. Started off with Elastic Beanstalk a long time ago and then mm -hmm. migrated off of Elastic Beanstalk. Good which, man. Yeah, which feels pretty good. Yeah. That it's was a not easy product. to <laughs> Okay, let's talk about that. Maybe this is what we can talk about for like the last few minutes of yeah. the of the episode. So why do you say that? Why is Elastic Beanstalk bad? Oh, it sucks. Like every every single which way. It doesn't work. It's nowhere near as good as things that you might compare it to. Like if you have ever used Heroku and you come to Elastic Beanstalk, that is horrible. Every time I used it, like used it, it's been unreliable. The configuration for it is weird. Its relationship with the other AWS products is bad. It doesn't support all the different kind of it's not like abstract enough, like the way you can think of like a container where you can put like any runtime. No, you have like specific versions of these things. And yeah, the I, level I, of abstraction I just is I weird. I don't tell anybody any time to ever use Elastic Beanstalk. And that's not just that's not just me, like not even beginners. Like if you are a beginner, don't use it. If you're advanced, you know not to. Just stay <laughs> away from Elastic Beanstalk entirely yeah i didn't think about that part of it that way until now but like the level of abstraction of it is weird because it's like it's it's too not abstracted and it's also too abstracted it's like pick one either be heroku or like don't exist but like don't give me this weird midway thing exactly and that's the third the how they position elastic beanstalk is it's sort of platform slash like application as a service like oh you have your app you can deploy Elastic Beanstalk. Well, you really can't. And if you can't somehow get it to work, it's not going to work as well as it would have. And then you still have instances running somewhere you have to be aware of. that You don't, you can't even forget that, right? Like if you were on Heroku, you don't care about servers. But if you're on Elastic Beanstalk, you still have to deal with EC2 instances and perhaps even customizing those instances to support your application. I made the mistake of trying Elastic Beanstalk for a production application. I learned the hard way that I will never do it again. And I will oh, do my no. best to prevent like anybody from trying to do a production on Elastic Beanstalk. Yeah, I had our production application running on Elastic Beanstalk, and luckily it didn't cost that much time to migrate off of it. Um, mm -hmm. But I'm glad now that I understand that it's like not good for running production applications. I wish I would have known before, but whatever. Yeah, so right now, like 
I'm off of Elastic Beanstalk using EC2, using Ansible to manage like deployments and provisioning and stuff like that. And that's pretty good, but I feel like there's a higher level of sophistication that we could be at where Mm -hmm. everything is easier and less manual. To me, at at the present moment with my present level of knowledge, it Mm -hmm. looks attractive to containerize the application and Mm -hmm. take advantage of Kubernetes so that a lot of this stuff is just abstracted away from me and I don't have to pay attention to these low-level details. I don't know if that's ultimately going to be what I actually do, but right now that seems pretty attractive. It seems pretty attractive, but I always come back to the fact that like, there's a surprising amount you can do with an auto-scaling group and a load balancer. Hmm. If you have one service and it's just one language, like you're not worrying about like, oh, we are a team, we have like n number of different services, they have these different languages, different runtimes, all different types of, you know, different types of things, then containerization makes more sense because you don't have to worry about the runtime and all that stuff. You can standardize on containers. Whereas like if you're just deploying, say, a Rails application, guessing that's what it is, then you just have Ruby. Build an instance that runs Ruby, you know, automate it with a golden image like something like Ansible put it in an auto-scaling group, and put it behind a load balancer. That gives you the capacity to do canaries. That gives you the capacity to do blue-green deployments. And it really is not that complicated. It doesn't require you jumping into a whole nother ecosystem of like containers and container orchestration and all that other stuff, because that stuff is like implementation details to like, what is your actual goal here? Ah, uh-huh. Well, Adam, maybe this is a good topic for our next podcast episode. Happy to talk about all this stuff because this is the stuff that, I, this is like basically what I do at Skillshare, right? Is okay. have, the, have these kind of conversations, like figure out like, what are we trying to achieve? What are the, like, the right technical solutions to achieve those things? And what kind of tools do we need? Because you know, at the end of the day, it comes back to those four metrics, right? Deployment frequency, lead time, MTTR, and change failure rate. If you're trying to improve your deployment frequency, then how is Kubernetes going to help? If you're trying to you know, improve your batch size or lead time, how is Kubernetes going to help? Like if you're having a production issue related to your infrastructure, like if it can't scale fast enough or if it's dropping out for whatever conditions, then maybe a change in infrastructure like to a move to a different kind of deployment or like different infrastructure deployment system can help with that. That's a different conversation. Yeah. Yeah. Very true. Okay. Well, lots of stuff for me to think about. In in closing, where should people go? I'm going to put show notes, links to all the books we've mentioned, Project to Product, DevOps Handbook, and Accelerate. Anything else that people should go and check out? Yeah. So if you go to my podcast, smallbatches.fm, the first four episodes are all about DevOps. That's an introduction to DevOps, the first way, the second way, and the third way. Also linked to an article in the show notes on software development in three ideas and four metrics. And if you want even more of this, you can take my free DevOps course at freedevopscourse.com. It's far more detailed into like the theory and the practice and what we can discuss on the podcast or in this interview. Nice. Uh, Adam, thanks so much for coming on the show. Always happy to, Jason. So much fun to talk to you. That completes this batch. Visit smallbatches.fm to subscribe to the show for free. Would you like a topic covered on the show? Then call plus one eight three three nine three three one nine one two and leave your request in a voicemail. Hope to have you back again for the next episode. So until then, happy shipping. Want to learn more about DevOps without wasting your time? Then sign up for my free email course at freedevopscourse.com. My course combines the best from the DevOps Handbook, Accelerate, and years of software delivery experience. You'll learn the three ways of DevOps and the four KPIs of software delivery performance. 
More importantly, I'll show you how to put that theory into practice. That means shipping better software faster. Sign up today at freedevopscourse.com.